3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. I'm Shahrazad Blul and I'm your host for today. Black Australia to Palestine, Solidarity in Decolonial Struggle. So that's the title of a recent article published by Eugenia Flynn and Tasneem Samak on Indigenous X. And they'll be joining us today to discuss it in more detail. Eugenia Flynn is a writer, academic, arts worker and community organiser. Eugenia is Aboriginal, Chinese, Malaysian and Muslim. And she works with her multiple communities to create change through art, literature and community engagement. Her thoughts on politics of race, gender and culture have been published widely. And Tasnim Samak is a PhD candidate at Monash University's Faculty of Education. She is a single mum of two boys and a local Palestinian Muslim organiser. So uh, Black Australia to Palestine, Solidarity in Decolonial Struggle. So this is the title of your recent co-written piece for Indigenous X, an online platform upholding Indigenous knowledges and voices. In the article you write about dispossession of land, in particular drawing the links between Palestine and Black Australia. And you talk about a shared history and reality of erasure. Can you expand on this? Like, definitely, I mean, the shared history, as we mentioned in the article, uh, it's a shared history of British colonisation. A lot of what uh, was advanced and experimented upon and formulated in terms of how Australia was colonised was used by the British to claim and colonise other lands much later on. So um, the links are already there. It's not that we, because we we kind of have a shared sense of oppression. Sometimes it's discussed in that way in terms of uh, like national trauma, but actually uh, the the colonization itself is shared as well. It's uh, similar logics, um, similar kind of um, uh, planning. Um, So that's already there. And with that, then we can also discuss that shared kind of experience of genocide, this possession that happens when there is this kind of violent erasure. 
the settler colonial aspect to it. For us, a Zionist one, you know, here locally, it's a kind of white settlement. Yeah, and I think, again, it's important to share that history. You know, I think lots of people wouldn't understand that there, that there is that shared history of British colonisation. That's just an English language speaking world arrogance, right? So, you know, oh, they're all foreigners over there. And so, you know, there's no sense that the British colonised that area because it's all kind of these are foreign people that speak a different language and have a different culture. And so, you know, the dominant culture here, the dominant language is, you know, English and then, um, you know, that that British culture that then transmuted into white Australian culture. So I think, again, you know, unless you are able to see that very clearly and, and, you know, hopefully that's what we try to do and spell that out in this article, it's difficult for people to see to see that history for what it is. Also, we had uh, Janine Harani on the show a few weeks ago uh, and she spoke about how the British colonial administration in Palestine took eucalyptus trees or seeds from so-called Australia to demarcate uh, Palestinian territories. Yeah. And uh, Palestinians were classified as, you know, natives, as you know, and that's that uh, again is something that, as I'm saying, you know, that was, uh, you know, it was formulated and um, kind of constructed uh, through what happened in the US, uh, in Australia, you know, in Canada. It, that's kind of how race was um, constructed. And so Palestinians were racialized in very similar terms. Like, yes, Palestinians uh, racialized as Arab, and therefore that sometimes creates a kind of disconnect. People don't read it in that way in terms of race. Um, but, of course, that's very much the experience, you know. Yeah, and that racialization happened to to enable things like colonization, to enable things like slavery. So, you know... Um, Really, that racialization is about domination, about resources and land. Yeah, and I guess that leads us to the next question, which is about oppression and discourses around oppression, which are often historicized and deterritorialized. So, some so something that happened in the past and something that happens elsewhere. Been settler colonies such as Israel and Australia, the structures of oppression are talked about you know, as if they are these interstitial events or moments of the past and that that is overcome by liberal democracies. Um, and they're not, however, and this is something that you talk about in your article. Yeah, I mean, I think they're also overcome by nationalism, right? Like that that is the idea of this kind of um, now what is a, a self-perpetuating modern nation state. And there's all sorts of yeah, all sorts of kind of, I don't know, really rabid nationalism that happens. And we see that in Australia, you know, the kind of let's build pride in Australia Day and all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think that those things go hand in hand. I think definitely, you know, the the Israeli kind of uh, far right is galvanised by the rise of the far right in Europe uh, in the West, you know, and, and of course in the US and Australia. But there are differences. So the kind of color blindness that you see um, in Australia and the US in terms of like mul- this kind of multiculturalism, right? Um, and the color blindness and what you're d- um, referring to as liberal democracy, that's not really um, 
as relevant to the Palestine experience because Israel doesn't try to pose, you know, we're, we're still non-citizens most, mostly, you know. We haven't had that kind of uh, integration sort of, uh, you know, uh, an assimilation process as, as much. So there are different points, I think, where different struggles are at, and, and that's quite important too, not to kind of conflate or flatten uh, settler colonial experiences. Because, yeah, that, that's quite important. So in Palestine, we have like Palestinian territories, we have, you know, Gaza, West Bank, we have, we have the framework of kind of occupation and apartheid that people use there, mostly because the whole of Palestine is not yet under kind of Israeli sovereignty where Israel kind of says that it's it's the nation state and all of us uh, yeah that kind of multiculturalism sort of whereas in Australia that's that's mostly the dominant mode at the moment that you know indigenous people are Australians indigenous people should just you know gain political leadership through parliament and that you know there's still that even though there's talks about, obviously, treaty and... Yeah, and I think that that nuance is so important because, I mean, that's what brings us together in lots of ways. There are similarities and there are differences. And, you know, we can build that solidarity together by understanding those nuances of the situation in in both places. Yeah, and we can learn from uh, each other's experiences too, you know. So a lot of Palestinians now, um, having seen where Australia is at and where the US is at, are saying actually maybe a civil rights kind of um, progression is not what we're seeking. Um, in the same way that, you know, Indigenous people here now are putting forward decolonization, for us it makes sense too seeing the experience, uh, how limited it is in actually arriving at justice, arriving at, you know, uh, any kind of reparation, etc. I think most Palestinian elders who, who did fight for um, certain gains, yeah, they, they would say that, no, like civil rights is very much a worthwhile kind of struggle. There are many gains from that movement. Uh, us as a generation, the only reason we're in universities and the only reason we have certain resources now and and some kind of voice is because of those gains. But I think, yeah, the critique is still relevant in many ways. Uh, just to look at the limits of that and the way that um, white power reproduces itself and sustains itself. I think the other thing about white supremacy is that it, it adapts. So, you know, white supremacy um, will adapt to different situations. So, you know, if there is a gain... Um, that's made through civil rights, for example, then it will adapt and transform to maintain its own power, right? So, you know, I think we have so much to be thankful for and to look in terms of civil rights. And, you know, here in Australia, there was, you know, black rights, uh, black power movement, sorry. Um, you know, I think that's incredibly important to kind of look at and learn from and yeah you know there are all sorts of advantages that I wouldn't have now if it wasn't for my elders in that struggle um, you know for example AMS's Aboriginal Medical Services Aboriginal Legal Services like I said before all of the broadcast media you wouldn't have NITV if you didn't have Karma which came out of that struggle you know all of these sorts of things that 
we enjoy, but, you know, that doesn't mean that it isn't time to change tactic because we live in a very, very different world and because those white supremacy, that has transformed and gained new ways, you know, and capitalism, for example, has become a very prominent tool used to oppress people of colour, right? There are people who would say everything's about class, it's not about race anymore. You know, I would argue that those things are very much intertwined and they're becoming, well, they have become very embedded with each other. So, you know, I think changing tactic is also, you know, that's part of that. that that's just being smart. We have to change tactic. And we also have to return to things that, you know, particularly in the Australian context, to things that were happening in that Black Power movement in the 60s and 70s, you know, going back to the 50s, that um, sense of resistance that was happening was very radical. And because there was no seat at the table at all, I mean, those people pushed for that, those conversations. It's very much from the outside trying to create that change from the outside. And what you have now is people on the inside trying to create incremental change or burning out or trying to create that change within the systems that exist. And so I think what you're seeing now, particularly amongst a lot of blackfellas, is, okay, this we, we tried going from the inside and it hasn't worked, it's tired us out, it's made us um, part of this system, which we don't want to be. And so let's do things like, you know, there's Indigenous cultural reclamation that's happening. There is a resurgence of um, really radical ideas. And, you know, I think that that's important. We also now have um, environmental issues. And for us as as blackfellas, you know, our um, whole way of being and our life comes from the land. And so, you know, that land was taken from us to be a resource for the empire. And now we see 200 years later the results of that with drought and fire and climate change. The people that will, around the world, the people that are impacted by that the most are Indigenous peoples. So, you know, that is another change that has happened that is recent that we have to deal with. We have to have different strategies to deal with that. So the reality of the situation we are in now and what what we need to do to move forward to, ha- to have this freedom from a range of different compounding oppressions in a time when you have things like global pandemics, global conflict. We live in a very, very different world now than than we did when our elders in the 50s, 60s and 70s were were um, involved in those movements. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, for the Palestinian experience, we can talk about, like, kind of the peace negotiations and the way that they haven't uh, given Palestinians much at all. So you have generations now uh, who, yeah, for uh, for a few decades, you know, at, um, especially after the Arab Spring, because that also was a kind of attempt, right? It was an attempt not... Uh, uh, Palestinians, but also uh, the people in the region, in the MENA region, who were all pro-Palestinian. The, those revolutions were about creating a kind of tr- a revolutionary transformation about uh, self-determination and, and gaining um, uh, power and asserting political will over their own futures. So now, 
You know, you have the peace negotiations that are kind of people are ambivalent about or, or no hope that anyone will support your revolutionary ambitions. So, yeah, we, we are at a really interesting point, kind of a convergence um, between uh, uprisings like George Floyd uprising in the U.S. and then uprisings in the third world, not just in Palestine. You were just listening to Taslim Samak and Eugenia Flynn. We will now bring you an excerpt of poetry from the Black Palestinian Poetry Night that took place in Nam, Melbourne on June 26th. So you'll be hearing some of Laniuk's poems. I rest my head on the window as the train gently rocks and I swallow my tears. I hate seeing you this way. Colonialism seems more ghastly in the countryside. Something about seeing cleared land where forests used to reside hits harder than concrete. Like maybe reclamation of land has potential and we could begin to heal right here in the soil. Like decolonization could be a verb and we could actualize our sovereign lives on our sovereign lands. But theoretical bare sovereign hand meets cold, sharp, twisted fences, meets privatised capitalism, meets white law, big guns, and we're straight back to where it all begun. There's something about seeing these old blue gums. That makes me entertain fantasies of justice. Or at least the time machine. So I could unravel every atom of my being, time warp to that shoreline, meet with our ancestors, take a deep breath and put a bullet straight through the centre of Cook's fucking head. There is something about seeing our lands dotted with pockets of familiar features as though without the sounds of swarming development, it is possible to hear countries cries for help. Rather, the sight of hooved creatures reminds me of the regime country's immune system is yet to destroy. And I smile and I nod when she says she loves horses and pretend to be excited by the rabbits and cats and foxes. But I can't take the Traugan train line without an inward cry. From Central Station to Maui, from 1788 to 2021, from here until justice. Thank you. And those were words from Laniuk, who is a writer, performer of poetry. We'll now go back to a discussion with Eugenia Flynn and Tasnim Samat. Back to Palestine and Black Australia, there's a long history of solidarity. Uh, the idea of the settler Aboriginal passports, which were made you know, purely for settlers to travel through Aboriginal lands, um, came about after a group of Palestinian women in Gadigal land came to the late Uncle Ray Jackson, who was, who was the president of the Indigenous Social Justice Association, to ask how can you know, we as settlers travel and pay respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands and peoples within you know, a colonial setting. 
Um, so I don't know if you want to speak more about uh, solidarity between Palestinian and black peoples and also moving beyond the notion of reciprocal solidarity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember that there were, you know, there was early solidarity, I think in the 70s. You might remember a date more than me, Tasneem, but maybe 60s, 70s. Um, yeah, you know, that solidarity has existed for a long time, but it's one of those things where you, you have to you have to work on solidarity. And, you know, I think we are at a moment where, uh, solidarity is in lots of ways being revived. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that there's been lots and lots of work that has, um, you know, really laid the, the groundwork for what we're seeing now. Lots and lots of education. Um, I've experienced lots of allies doing their own education within communities, you know, rise refugees, survivors and ex-detainees for a very long time have done solidarity actions, also did stuff in languages other than English for their membership, for refugees and asylum seekers to share information about what Indigenous sovereignty means, whose land this is, um, what's wrong with Australia Day, and that that's a very, you know, a project that's been happening for a number of years um, and also, you know, did um, after um, after the uncle up in Sydney did the passport ceremonies, did a passport ceremony here in, in Melbourne in like, I think it was 2016. Um, and, you know, um, I've had long-term collaborators like Shakira Hussain and Amar Rahman. I mean, Amar and I worked for a number of years um, in anti-racism, so, you know, over 10 years trying to educate the Muslim community um, about um, anti-black racism and that that's not just about um, Indigenous black people here but also um, about, you know, other black people who are, are Muslim and who are experiencing racism from, you know, within the Muslim community. So um, all of that groundwork you know, I kind of look back and reflect and think that has really helped, you know, that has really, I think, led to this point. And, you know, meeting someone like Tasneem and being able to um, continue that work and with her energy and, um, you know, really strategic thinking, you know, we need people to be thinking critically about what is happening and, um, you know, thinking very deeply about all the different kind of elements that go into understanding a situation and being able to try and work our way out of that. Yeah, I think that that's incredibly, incredibly important. And, you know, solidarity is very much about action. Um, yeah, I'm not really big on the <laughs> kind of service stuff. <laughs> and for me, you know, that yeah, like to kind of question the reciprocal aspect that sometimes is imposed when we talk about black um Palestinian solidarity, um, because you know, it makes it it puts them both like on, on some kind of equal footing, which, you know, that's actually not reflective of um the reality, like the uh positionalities there, because um uh, someone like me is Australian, you know. Um, whereas Eugenia or other um, black uh, people, they're not they're not Israeli, 
So um, me being Australian, that um, has a lot here. We can't just uh, cut that out and then make it seem as though all I am is Palestinian. So there's that kind of diaspora aspect to to my um, subjectivity. But of course, yeah, that being Australian means I've um, I, I don't want to overdo. Sometimes people overdo that whole privilege kind of stuff. For me, it's not about that, about like checking privilege. That's important. But I think it's just about the fact that, you know, being Australian means that um, I have a life here. My children were born here. Uh, I uh, I care about this nation. I care about everyone who's here and and where we get to, you know. It's not like uh, previous generations who were thinking that, okay, they're going to live in Australia for a little bit and then when we have the right of return, we're going to pack our bags and move back to the Middle East. So there there are different relations to place. And I think that's where, for me, it comes from, Um, as well as, of course, you know, uh, using whatever power I do have um, in, uh, like, to advance um, Indigenous struggle and all of that. But it's not just about that, like... I think sometimes people, when they speak about it in those terms, they make it, again, very transactional or about obligation. There is that, but it's also about, it's also about you know, um, life, about hope, about, you know, there's a spiritual element to it. And I think we mentioned it a little bit in the, in the piece about, you know, like me being Muslim, like uh, I really believe Oz Panatayla, you know, he instructed us to, to stand up for justice, to stand up against oppression. Um, there's a kind of sisterhood, a, a brotherhood. So there are many relations that come with the fact that I grew up here, I'm in community uh, with Indigenous um, people. Like I, before coming to Australia, I grew up in New Zealand. Um, so a lot of the kids I went to school with were Maori. You know, there's a lot of care there. There's We, you know, seeing the way that um, Maori people were subjugated, seeing disadvantage and marginalization. Um, it's not just about me trying to be in solidarity. It's actually that that can't be the way it is um, moving forward, uh, that there needs to be uh, liberation. There needs to be, uh, yeah, these wrongs need to be corrected. And given that we live here, we can participate in correcting that. Eugenia, did you have any last words on what, you know, moving beyond reciprocal solidarity can look like? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I want to say that um, Tasneem and I had a conversation about this when we were writing. Um, it's always funny to write something in conjunction with someone else. And this was something that um, I guess, you know, you might understand on a real well for me I understood on a really shallow level but having that conversation with Tasneem was really important for me to understand where she was coming from you know and being able to articulate and name that to articulate and name that it's not just about solidarity and reciprocity but it is about what is right and you know we're, we're both Muslim and um, that is it that is something that is shared between us this sense of um rightness and justice you know for me that comes from um my faith but it also you know comes from um the way i was raised and um you know my um you know blackness as an aboriginal person 
um, you know, a whole range of different things. And, and that is very much about the way that we relate to one another and how we exist in the world. And, you know, I think that that sense of, that sense of justice and what is right and that sense of what is the future, you know, you know, just as Tasneem was saying, you can't, unless you correct the wrongs of the past, there's just absolutely no moving forward. And, you know, I have felt that from birth as, as an Aboriginal person, you know, that has been what I was born into is a system of oppression that continues because, yeah, because those wrongs haven't been righted and, you know, our land was taken for the empire and we were racialized as black and, um, you know, attempted um, both cultural genocide and actual genocide um, and all sorts of violence and that has transmuted into the systems that we have today that continue to oppress us. Um, and, I, you know, I think that that standing up and being able to or wanting to work towards eradicating those systems of oppression and moving forward to a better future is just so incredibly important and it it should it should be in the forefront of everybody's mind unfortunately it's not Those were powerful ending words by Eugenia Flynn, who is a writer, academic and arts worker and community organiser. And also in the discussion was Tasnim Samak, who is a PhD candidate at Monash University's Faculty of Education. I'm Shahira Zablul. Until next time. Thanks to Scheherazade Blue there for that piece on solidarity in de- decolonial struggle. You can catch the full conversation at 3cr.org.au slash women on the line. Um, and, or you could go to indigenousx.com.au slash black Australia to Palestine solidarity in decolonial struggle. You're here on 3CR Breakfast. My name is Fung, and also in the studio today is Jacob. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. How are you this morning, Jacob? Yeah, I'm I'm going really well, thank you. How are you, Fong? Yeah, that's uh, I'm good. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, well, we might go to a song now. Um, this next one is one of my favourites. It's by um, Misha and the Wurrabunda Singers, and it's called Neon Moon.
So that was Neon Moon by Misha. More than 50,000 Australians have signed petitions asking the Australian government to support changes to international trade rules. These changes would help low-income countries access vital COVID-19 vaccines. This is following a proposal put to the World Health, sorry, the World Trade Organization by South Africa and India in October 2020 for a temporary waiver on the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights agreement, otherwise known as TRIPS, which is a key piece of international legislation that influences the global supply of vaccines. Joining us now is Dr. Patricia Reynolds, the convener of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. Patricia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us a bit about the process for a country to secure doses of COVID-19 vaccines? Yes, well, it's a complicated process because pharmaceutical companies have a 20-year monopoly over each new vaccine. And so that means that each government has to negotiate with each pharmaceutical company over both the price and the quantities. And the half a dozen pharmaceutical companies at the moment therefore control access to these medicines Um, and it's for this negotiating process means that the rich countries are first in the queue but uh, and have secured access in many cases but even Australia is having difficulties getting supplies as we all know for low-income countries um, it's calculated that none of them will get 
well, sorry, most of them won't get access until after 2023 or 2024, um, just because there's A, there's not enough supply, and B, there's this long queue of governments that have to negotiate. <clears throat> so the proposal for the waiver of the WTO rules is to say that um, for the it's a temporary waiver for the duration of the pandemic that um, the um, rules will be suspended for patents or monopolies on vaccines so that low-income countries can actually um, have manufacturing hubs themselves, countries like India and South Africa, which already produce a lot of generic medicines, and you can therefore increase, increase global production and make vaccines more available to everyone. Right. So by the sounds of it, that's quite a monopoly on, on the vaccine supplies. And am I right in saying that the lower income countries can't access this because they have less bargaining power than the, the richer countries? Yes, that's part of it. But it's also just um, the technicalities of the process. Um, under current WTO rules, they can apply to the company to waive the waiver, sorry, to waive the patent. But if you have, if you have to do that company by company and country by country, it just takes an awful long time. So what's being proposed is a blanket waiver for low-income countries on the monopoly rules so that they can go ahead and get access to the know-how and, and so on to produce the vaccines. Of course. Um, and can you tell us a bit how has this vaccine inequity affected people living in these lower-income countries? Well, if you look at Indonesia, for example, there's a terrible crisis there at the moment. And um, thousands of people are dying every day and they just don't have the vaccine supply to vaccinate people. Um, the same is now happening in some Pacific Island countries, like Fiji, and in some African countries that there's a terrible uh, situation as well. So we're seeing all over the world people are dying because they don't have access in low-income countries to vaccines. There is a charitable um, process called COVAX where countries can donate, rich countries can donate vaccines, but these numbers are really very small compared to the need. Um, there's over 6 billion people in the world, so you need over 11 billion doses of vaccines and um, the amounts that are being donated <coughs> by richer countries are um, in the hundreds of thousands to particular companies, uh, to, to particular um, low-income countries. So they're not just meet, they're just not meeting the needs. Definitely. I think there's a lot of conversation at the moment in Australia about uh, the slow vaccine rollout, but but not a lot of discussion about you know what's happening in other countries. Um, and I know there's quite a lot of support um, on the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, um, particularly from the the church and civil society groups, um, for some changes to these World Trade Organization rules. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. In fact, today 15 organisations have written to the um, ministers government ministers, the Minister for Trade and Foreign Affairs and to shadow ministers, um, asking them to support this waiver to the current WTO rules. It's actually going to be discussed at an important meeting tomorrow, the 20th of July, um, 
of the WTO. Um, the proposal has been negotiated or discussed in detail over the last couple of weeks and tomorrow there's an actual meeting um, of the what's called the Trade in Pro Intellectual Property Rights Council which is going to um, further discuss and perhaps we hope make a decision about this or a recommendation. <clears throat> the um, organisations involved include um, groups like AFTINET and the ACTU, but also a broader group including Amnesty International, the Uniting Church, uh, the um, National Office of Catholic Bishops in Australia for um, Justice and Peace and the Environment, uh, Oxfam uh, and a number of other organisations, the Salvation Army, um, as well as um, Friends of the Earth and um, other aid and development groups like um, ActionAid, also the National Peak Body for Aid and Development Groups, the Australian Council for International Development. So you can see that's quite a wide range of both church, aid and development, union, environment groups. They represent millions of Australians and they're calling on the government to support this change because so far our government hasn't um, said that it will support the change. Absolutely. So quite a large number of organisations here lobbying for that change. You mentioned there was a meeting tomorrow um, at the World Trade Organisation. Can we expect there to be any uh, decisive outcomes from this meeting? Well, we hope there will, but unfortunately the World Trade Organisation is a slow-moving body and it also works on consensus. Now, that means that all countries have to agree. Um, at the moment, it has 194 members and at the moment over 100 of them are supporting the waiver. But And uh, the meetings that have been taking place up till now um, have been taking place as negotiations, so they're behind closed doors. So we don't really know what the outcome will be tomorrow. Um, but um, it is possible that um, if they get to 120 organisations supporting it, then they can have a majority vote. And that's why um, we're urging our government to support it. Uh, and we're also... Um, there's work going around... Sorry, work going on all around the world in different places, um, lobbying governments to support the waiver. Yeah, of course. So we know that Australia is, is one of the main culprits who might not be supporting the waiver. Um, do you, can you tell us a bit more, are there any other countries that are in particular against this waiver? Well, predictably, the main countries who are not supporting it are actually the um, richer countries, and they're the ones where the main pharmaceutical companies are based, except for the U.S., um, the Biden administration has come out in support of the waiver for vaccines. But um, the um, European Commission, which is the trade negotiating body, which is very influenced by Germany, has not yet supported it. And Germany, um, of course, is a big centre of um, pharmaceutical production. Um, also, Japan hasn't been supporting it. So... Um, there's been a lot of work going on um, in those countries 
um, to lobby those governments. Um, but the pharmaceutical companies do have a lot of influence and they've been actively lobbying against the waiver. Mm, absolutely. So quite a lot of work that's being done at the moment. Uh, what can our listeners do to support efforts to change these trade rules? Well, you go to our website, aftinet.org.au, and you can send a letter. Uh, it connects you to a, um, a website where you can just put in your postcode and send a message to your local MP. If you want to, you can also send a message, the same message to the Prime Minister um, or the Minister for Trade. And um, thousands of people have already... Um, done that, gone through that process of sending a, me a message to their local MPs and we will also be um, sending letters to all MPs about this issue this week. But I do urge people to send a message to your local MP because that puts additional pressure um, on the Minister. The letter yeah. asks the Minister to, sorry, the letter asks the local MP to uh, tell the Minister to support the waiver. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Patricia. Definitely some actions that we can all take uh, towards more vaccine equality. Thank you. Okay, that was Dr. Patricia Ranald there from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. And <clears throat> uh, we can place the link um, to the website um, that Patricia mentioned just now in the show notes for today. So if you do want to write to your local MP and um, encourage them to support the waiver, um, then, yeah, you can, you can do so today. Um, we'll be right back after this announcement. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter. The census is happening this August. Your answers help make a better future for all of us. Like the number of babies, so health services know where we need mums and bubs programs. And the number of people in communities to plan local transport services. You can help tell our story. Look out for instructions on what to do. For more info, visit census.abs.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. The time is 7.47am and we're going to go to a track now. This uh, one is one of my favourites. It's a reworking of Paul Kelly's Little Things by Ziggy Ramo. around people and I'll tell you a story 200 years of history that's falsified British invaders that we remember as heroes are you ready 
to tell the other side. We start our story in 1493 with a piece of paper called the Doctrine of Discovery invoked by Pope Alexander VI. Without this good Christian, our story don't exist. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Captain James Cook, he boarded a fleet And he was armed with the doctrine of discovery The same tactics were used by Columbus It's how today Australia claims terra nullius Cause on that paper, the Pope did write That you're only human if you've been saved by Christ And if there are no Christians in sight, the land you stumble on becomes your God-given right. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Is that your Lord? Because that's invasion. That's the destruction of 500 nations The genocide of entire populations Which planted the seeds for the stolen generation And grew into my people's mass incarceration Now we pass trauma through many generations The Lord can't discover what already existed For 200 years my people have resisted from little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. The wars continued since Captain James Cook. And this side of history you don't write in your books. You don't want the truth and you don't want to listen. But how can you stomach Australia's contradiction? Cause we went to war in 1945 We were allies against a terrible genocide And I know it's uncomfortable But the irony I see is that you fall for them But you don't fight for me From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow We should move on, move on to what? I still remember, have you forgot? That Vincent Langari knew others were rising. Gringy inspired us to keep on fighting. So call it Australia, go on call it what you like. I just call it how I see it, and I see genocide. Now that you hear me, can you understand? There will never be justice on our stolen land. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow.
This is the story of so-called Australia, but this is the story of so much more. How power and privilege cannot move my people. We know where we stand. We stand in our law. From little things, big things grow. 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 Playing out there um, is was the song "Little Things" by Ziggy Ramo and Paul Kelly. A few weeks ago, Marissa Spasaro from 3CR's Doin' Time spoke to activist, actor, and elder Uncle Jack Charles about his appearance on the SBS program "Who Do You Think You Are." In this interview, Uncle Jack recalls his travels to his ancestral lands. The importance of knowing who you are and where you come from, and his work in youth detention. We hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, Uncle Jack. Welcome to the program. Uh, Thanks very much, Marissa. Good to be on 3CR and to be heard uh, around around the traps and uh, especially in prisons. Absolutely, Uncle. And, you know, I'm so glad you've come on because my Braille computer has just chosen this time to reset, so I lost my script. So, <laughs> so, so you've saved the day. So just listeners, I'll, I'll complete that intro after we've spoken to Uncle Jack. So tell us, Uncle, what's been going on? Tell us about the episode of, of um, oh, Who Do You Think You Are? Who Do You Think You Are? You know, many of us of the, the soul and gents never get to discover the full extent of that lost, hidden denied heritage of ours. And now, through the good grace of uh, SPS and uh, that Bob, who do you think you are, I have a high enough profile to be plucked uh, for them to uh, research through my DNA on on, uh, my family connections, my family kinship ties and etc. And especially my heritage, my connection to the... uh, uh, the mob in Tasmania through the Briggses and etc., going back uh, five generations to my great 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 grandfather Manalagena, uh, a big uh, warrior down there, leader, uh, and uh, 
I was a little bit upset on the, uh, the leg, uh, the Tasmanian leg of the journey, but very pleased with what I discovered here in Victoria. They found out who my real father was. He was a Hilton Hamilton Walsh from Cumra. So I'm proud to be able to say now, and many a Briggs person, Tony Briggs and etc., and many people in the community were say, always telling me I was Yorta Yorta on my... So, so I am Yorta Yorta on my father's side. I know who he is. And uh, and lo and behold, I met, uh, as you saw, I see in the docker, uh, uh, um, uh, my brother, um, Grady Walsh, who works at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service over in Epping, that unit there, and uh, he's my brother. And I have another brother living in Ballarat uh, and two sisters alive living up in Swan Hill. So I'll make a pilgrimage to those places and uh, eventually get to meet them. But it, it is, uh, I feel a large sense of, uh, of completeness, a completeness, completedness in my, uh, uh, of who I am, uh, having been given unto me from who do you think you are by heritage. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I stand a, a little bit taller than my, my present uh, height at the moment. I'm only, uh, you know, a little bit uh, two centimetres short of five foot, but uh, I stand taller and prouder than ever now, knowing who, the, and who, who, who I am. <laughs> you know, Uncle Jack, I noticed such a wonderful power in you yeah. that night of the episode. It was... You were just powerful. Do you know what I mean by the word powerful? Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. People are saying, is, is, you know, we can't understand why you're, you're not angry. Well, I am. I do have a profound sense of piss offness uh, about Tasmania, what uh, George Augustus Robinson, the bloke who wrote extensively about the, the history of the Tasmanian blacks and the way he treated uh, Mano Legena, a five-times great-great-grandfather and that, you know. Uh, he was uh, my grandfather's man in Legenda's Judas's carrier. I got to realise so, and it's forced me to really, uh, you know, take the the bull by the horns and uh, uh, seek an audience with uh, the Tasmanian Premier and the Education Minister, also uh, the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, uh, while we're while we're running hot with him, and uh, and the uh, the State Minister for Education to uh, start. Uh, taking Indigenous history seriously and to bleed it into our schools' curriculums. We need truth in history onto our state schools' curriculums. And I've always known that uh, each state has got a unique story to tell and it should be told. Absolutely, Uncle Jack. And one of the things that I found really inspiring on, on the episode as well was the way that you, you went to all the, the different countries, didn't you? So you went to the different lands of of your heritage? Yes, yes. Tasmania, how's that, eh? Again, up the camera, speaking with Uncle Colin Walker, seeing my my father's uh, burial site, uh, seeing Grady Walsh, uh, my my brother. uh, He had a a suitcase of dads, and uh, on the time that we were talking on the... down there at the... uh, uh, Fairfield uh, Amphitheatre Tea Rooms, and that he had a suitcase of that. He said, I've got a suitcase of our dad's here, Jack, and I'll open it up. And lo and behold, they were in his beautifully 
carved emu eggs in there. Some are finished, some are finished. And uh, as Dad, Dad did there, here's a knife similar to the one he used, and etc. And listen, I, I, I'll open my computer, Jack. I've got him here, uh, our dad. Yeah. There it was, talking, and he speaks ever so well. Uh, he reminded me of Jimmy Little, the way he's... He spoke, and then he sang too, and he re- definitely reminded me of Jimmy Little and my early days of trying to make it into music, you know, uh, before I got into theatre. And so, uh, and he was well-dressed in a white piece suit, standing in front of a riverboat on the Murray there yep. uh, on Tupperagunja. And uh, I said, well, that's, that's incredible. You know, he, you know, he, he, I, I get my sense of... Uh, of, uh, of of good wear, of good mocker, good wearing good clothes uh, from my father. You know, I do remember many a uh, uh, many a policeman down at Paran Police Station was saying I was one of their best dressed cat burglars they've ever encountered. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm just so happy for you, Uncle, that you were able to find your family and. I... Oh, uh, nothing like it. And there's so many, so many people in our in our prisons and new detention centres. That That's right. Very little inkling of the full extent of their heritage, etc. So, uh, and I believe that's a missing element that could be uh, reviewed and uh, for them to uh, uh, seek solace and start, uh, begin to uh, take a closer look at themselves, uh, who they are and where they come from. Absolutely. I think it's a to know exactly. Uh, the big story of um, the Indian yeah. you are. Yeah. And listeners also need to know, and I'm not sure if we've got enough time to talk about this in detail, but that Uncle Jack a- appeared as a central character in the documentary Bastardry, and I remember um, seeing that, and then writing a book, and you've penned music, and you've done TED Talks and advocacy, <laughs> and it's it's just... Words can't describe, Uncle, the, yeah, well, the, the respect you know, well, I've got for you. Zooming in during the COVID period into the detention centres, uh, but also our uh, adult prisons has been a blessing too. We, we did have a win with Daniel Andrews' government. Uh, some uh, years, years ago, I gave evidence at a series of inquiries with the Wodonga mob in the city, going into Parliament, giving evidence as to the reason why we... We believe that certain criminal records could be expunged within the space of three, five and ten years and for some individuals even three months. We know that there are some crimes that can't be forgiven, but nonetheless, it was read in the lower house before I got into rehearsals uh, for a production that I was due to do, I was contracted to do with Elbitry Theatre, a theatre from Auckland, Mari Theatre, and... uh, uh, just when I was uh, starting to rehearse, I got a message from the Wodonga mob uh, telling me, if it's possible, Jack, can you come back in and expand on it? The opposition were crying a little bit iffy and were wondering if Uncle Jack was being a little soft on crime. And I said, no, no, we're not going soft on crime. The Archie Race Foundation, I'm doing my work with, you know, uh, and that special raving ambassador and a public spokesperson for we, we work on the notion that we need incentives, and this is one of the prime elements of, of an incentive to uh, get people to seriously think about their future. You too can have your criminal record expunged if only you took yourself.
code of law to have an eventually your criminal record expunged. Is it time? Well, that's right. People, is it time for people in the net to start seriously thinking about who they are uh, and uh, uh, and what do they want to do with their lives? Do they want to be dedicated recidivist? And the system, I, be, I was saying, you know, relies on the, uh, people being dedicated recidivist. Uh, they're building more jails because people are going, you know, coming in and out of prisons and etc. So uh, uh, it, it's the job of an elder in my unique situation to talk to consciences of others. And that you know, I'm not such a tall poppy. Absolutely, uh, no, you're right. Uh, I'm only uh, two centimetres short of five foot, as I said. Uh, so, so, but the point of fact is, I have got something to say. I have got, uh, you know, uh, the ability to uh, uh, to communicate to, to people how to get off the methadone. You can take exactly. control of it yourself, and that. But you have to be seriously serious about it, and uh, yeah, you know. There's got to be a point at some time or another where you don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to regress. You want to, you don't want to you know, keep on repeating uh, the, 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 the muck-ups that you've been existing and going back into prisons and etc. So, Uncle, you know, yeah. So that's my job. And, yeah. Uh, it seems to have been working because there's nothing I like better than when somebody will come up to me and tripping over themselves to tell me that they're off the methadone. That's right. Yep. So that's proof positive that uh, uh, what I'm what I'm advocating is that uh, you know if, if at any point in time that you feel that you can take charge of uh, controlling your intake and your dosage yourself, you know, have a talk with your doctor and the chemist and determine that you'll come in every second day and wean yourself off slowly. Uh, that's a message uh, for people that are listening in prisons, our prison systems. But, of course, uh, that's the way I did it. After I came out in 2005, it took me two years to jump off near 75 mil. Two you years see? to finish off the docker at the same time. And by 2008, I was I was shot of uh, the, even the government-sponsored drug. That's right. Uh, and I came good, and uh, I, I, I touted myself as a walking, talking, you know, uh, uh, beyond reproach role model. That's exactly right, Uncle Jack. We're going to have to. I'm going to have to move on to the next interview really soon. But um, right. just really quickly, though, and I know we're probably not going to have time to talk about it, and it really is the most horrible topic anyway. But yeah. it, this particular thing needs to be placed into school curriculums in regards to what happened in Tasmania with the way that the women were kidnapped and all the seals were killed. I mean, it's awful. Yes, uh, the women actually uh, suffered uh, the most horrific death. Uh, the men were just merely killed. The women were actually tortured, tied to trees and etc., and tortured uh, yep. before they were, they, they were eventually killed. And so this uh, history needs to be taught, and I think Year 10, 12 students in Tasmania... Are, uh, are up for uh, learning truth in history. Absolutely. We can't whitewash the history, and we know that uh, certain states are, 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 have been, uh, you know, putting forth uh, the a notion that uh, uh, their state's uh, indigenous history should be told in our schools' curriculum. But I fear it'll be a whitewash. We must have yeah. truth in history if we're ever going to uh, 
uh, if we're ever going to be uh, truly reconciled. That was the Reverend Uncle Jack Charles speaking to Marissa Spizarro from 3CR's Two in Time program. You can watch Uncle Jack Charles' episode of Who Do You Think You Are via SBS On Demand. And to listen to more episodes of Doing Time, head over to 3cr.org.au forward slash Doing Time. And Doing Time is also on Mondays from 4pm to 5pm. Our next report is brought to you by Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women into the inquest of Raymond Noel Lindsay Thomas's death. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am. Or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Gunai Gundijimara and Wiradjuri man, Raymond Noel Lindsay Thomas, died during a police pursuit on the 25th of June 2017. The inquest into his death commenced on Monday the 5th of July 2021, four years later. The inquest heard that Raymond Knoll was driving home from his local supermarket and was pursued by a highway patrol car and died in Victoria Street in Thornbury, just three kilometres from the supermarket. The officers who pursued Raymond Knoll announced his death 21 seconds after formally calling in the pursuit to their area command. Joining me on today's show... To talk about the inquest and Aboriginal deaths in custody is Aboriginal activist and co-founder of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Tarnine Onus-Williams. Tarnine starts here by introducing themselves. My name is Tarnine Onus-Williams and I'm proud of Gunditjmara, Bindu, Yorta Yorta and Teresha Anga person and I live on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. And I am one of Raymond Thomas's cousins. And Ray Thomas is a, an Aboriginal man who died in a police chase in 2017. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so Ray was, um, Ray lived in Thornbury um, with his mum, his dad and his siblings, his brothers. And he went to Woolworths on Plenty Road in South Preston, and which is which is not far from his house, and he drove there to go get cakes, cake mix, and uh, lollies. And on the way home, he was pursued by police. Um, as we found out in the inquest two weeks ago, now it was because his car looked dodgy in the comments. And after he was pursued, uh, he crashed into a back of a car, and he died at the scene um, of that accident. And um, he had his inquest uh, just two weeks ago, which went for two weeks, and uh, his parents, Annie Debbie and Uncle Ray, were present throughout that inquest and other community members and 
Uh, it's taken a really long time to get this inquest up and going because of the classification um, as Black Death in Custody. It wasn't seen as a Black Death in Custody because it was a pursuit, so he wasn't yet uh, under arrest. And that's why it's taken so long to get his inquest heard. Well, that was, interestingly, that was my next question. A lot of people might wonder how a police chase actually got classified as a death in custody and therefore became something investigated by the coroner's court. Can you talk us through the steps or the campaign that the family took in order to really pressure the coroner's court to investigate this? From what I know, which I don't know that much and what steps they exactly took to get um, that going. But their legal representatives at each point are Christian Legal Service and I know there's lots of advocacy around getting it classified as a black death in, black death in custody. And I think that, you know, I think the family did a really good job in campaigning and fighting for that and they had attended multiple um, rallies and spoken at those rallies about his death and I think that, you know, one of the things which I, that a lot of people didn't, haven't really realised is that Raymond Thomas died six months before Aitanya Day, um, who, sh- who died, um, after being in police custody in December 2017. And her case, um, and her inquest, you know, so many people know about it and we were absolutely gobsmacked that her inquest took so long in, uh, because it took two years for the the coroner to see Aitanya's case. And now we've just had Raymond Knoll's inquest into his death. In 2021, when he had died uh, after a police pursuit in June 2017. And so that's, you know, appalling that's taken so long to hear and get evidence for this family um, to not have that part of closure after having a black death in custody, I think is just shameful. And, like, you know, there needs to be better and quicker ways to be able to have inquests for black deaths in custody because waiting so long was just so gruelling for the families. It does. It sounds... It sounds- um, a, an excruciating wait for it's not even justice because the coroner hasn't handed down their findings yet. It's just that opportunity to be heard, even. Mm. Uh, and in, and in relation, even the I was just jumping just because you know that was the it was gathering evidence. So I think some people don't know how the coroner's court works and it's an investigative body and so when they have those inquests sitting it's you're investigating to get evidence from police officers and witnesses and so the family actually got to find out what happened in those final final moments of his life because they didn't know um for the last four years what happened yeah well is it I mean, you mentioned a little bit of what happened in, in those final moments earlier, but do you want to talk about what the family discovered during the inquest about how that police chase ensued? Some of the things that the family found out through the inquest was um, 
what the state the roads were in, and I know, I know it might seem like minor details, but um, what state of the road it was in, it was, you know, like a bit wet. And we found out as well what speed the police were going in the car when they were pursuing Ray. And at one point, you know, the car got up to 170, I think 173 kilometres. Uh, we found out that the police don't have efficient police, um, sorry, pursuit policies as well. And there's lots of um, evidence gathering in the inquest in the second week about the police pursuits policy in Victoria Police and how it's it just doesn't have um, enough meat in it for, and enough, you know, doesn't show enough grounds or, like, doesn't show, like, or tell you how and when you should start a police pursuit. And I think one of the things the lawyers were working on was really trying to find out, like, when should you start a police pursuit and and can you start a police pursuit? And, like, um, is an unregistered vehicle grounds to start a police pursuit? And I guess those aren't really that clear. And one of the things that the lawyers were doing were talking about uh, on the lawyers, I mean, as representatives of uh, Uncle Ray and Aunt Debbie, were talking about that the policies don't give Victoria Police um, officers on the ground enough information whether they should um, pursue um, people or not. And I think that, you know, in terms of minor traffic offences, like, you would think that you shouldn't pursue for an unregistered car. So I think the family has really come out um, pretty strong about not wanting police pursuits for minor. This sounded a little bit worse than that because not only were they rather minor offences, but there was some stereotyping mm-hmm. as well. The language you used at the earlier in the interview was that, you know, his car looked a little bit dodgy. Now, that could be a class thing. You know, he just looked like a poor mm-hmm. person or exactly. he looked like a poor Aboriginal person. Was that interrogated much mm-hmm. in the inquest? So they didn't interrogate race at all in the inquest um, because with coronial inquest, they can only stay in the scope of the investigation. So it really doesn't allow you to go outside of, like, um, I can't remember what the two things were that were in the scope, but it was there was, wasn't any questions around that. I think in Antonia Day's inquest, uh, like the scope for her as one of the investigative um, parts was uh, institutional racism, but because the uh, police officers couldn't identify him as being Aboriginal because they couldn't see him. Um, they didn't address his race much at all. I think that, you know, also, like, I think class has definitely got a huge issue and it's been a, it's been a big part of it as well in terms of the police um, using language like there's a lot of drugs around that area. Um, so... I think it's like this is the type, it shows what the type of policing that police are putting on uh, this community as well, not just black holes, but um, other poor 
poorer communities um, within Thornbury and Preston. So, yeah, like I think judging a car and just saying that it looks dodgy or it looks like, you know, we're sus on this car because of there's drugs in this area, but there's drugs everywhere. There's drugs in South Yarra and there's drugs in Kew. And I just don't really get that classification of why the police officer used that language. And how did the cops respond to some of these questions and allegations during the hearing? We'll get to um, their presence in a moment, but for now, how did they answer to these allegations? I didn't attend. I wasn't there when that, the two police officers who were driving the vehicle gave evidence. I wasn't present for that. I was present for the Assistant Commissioner Murphy's evidence and she, I think that hers was definitely more like obviously around like structural stuff and like representing like the institution and its policies. And I think that it was just not the evidence that she gave, I know, was just not clear in terms of how the policies are interpreted. And the coroner, I think at some stages was very confused uh, about some of the ways that she interpreted the pursuits policy in particular. Um, I think that the way that the family was treated uh, on, I think it was the 1st of July, um, when the Assistant Commissioner Murphy attended the inquest, there was um, numerous police officers there, public order response officers, to, you know, intimidate the family. And the their presence was like so violent in that they were standing at the front door of the courtroom and um then they wait then they got asked to leave and the magistrate said that they should not be present in inside the courthouse at all. Um so they were not allowed in the public order response team and they had waited outside until four o'clock until the inquest was over for the day. Um, but, yeah, they just sat in their car, like three public order responses, vehicles and police officers were at the front of the coroner's court. So it was just, you know, not only did uh, Raymond Knoll's family, like, lose him to a police pursuit and violent, the violence of policing, but also to have them harassed and trying to get justice and trying to get evidence. Um, about their son's death and, their, and like what they can do to change it. So it was, yeah, it was traumatizing for people for sure. And I encourage people to look up, uh, the Guardian to, and the NITV to look at what the police officers who were in the vehicle said and, uh, to read more about it there. It really does bring up that necessary discussion and space of political activity around prison abolition, which necessarily brings into the question uh, about how policing works in society. You and I have worked together for a long time, Tani, so I know politically that you are a a prison abolitionist. Uh, I mean, what do you think is a pathway forward for that 
campaign and that conversation. Obviously, abolishing prisons tomorrow is not possible, but where mm-hmm. to from here? What What are your ideas for that? I think that we need to have more community responses to violence and harm. I think that's one of the things that um, I feel really strongly about because, as we've seen over, you know, the last few hundred years, that police don't make us safer. And I think that we need to focus on, like, working together uh, as a a community, as a society, and to be able to support each other and be able to not rely on a violent system and violent police force to be able to stop violence uh, from happening. So, and I think that goes, you know, can go into, like, what's happening with, coercive control in New South Wales and you know I, I think that laws like that need to be stopping need to stop being made right now well Tarnine thank you so much for your time on the show today I I wondered if the coroner had given an indication of when they might hand down their findings in this case when can we expect to hear the outcome I'm not sure. They usually take about six months. But, yeah, I'm not sure of any indication as when he'll be um, handing down his findings. I think that, you know, the family is really happy with the coroner, and um, which is really important. I think he showed them, you know, some dignity with respect that they absolutely deserve. So, and which is, you know, you know the bare minimum. But, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that just so that the family's voices are heard and just so that, you know... Uncle Deb and um, I Deb and Uncle Ray's voices heard. That was Tarnine Onus Williams speaking about the coronial inquest into the death of Raymond Noel Lindsay Thomas, who died in a police pursuit in 2017 because police identified his car as unregistered and dodgy looking. Hopefully, this inquest will lead to some reforms about the circumstances in which police can commence a high-speed pursuit. Giselle Hanna there with that report from Accent of Women. You can hear the full interview at www.3cr.org.au forward slash Accent of Women. And you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, joined by Jacob. And Fung. Uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I hope everyone's staying safe and well during Melbourne's fifth lockdown. And uh, make sure you uh, stay tuned to Women on the Line after this show and also tomorrow morning at 7am for 3CR Breakfast. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. That's it for 3CR's Breakfast Show this morning. Thanks for your company. Tune in across the week for more community current affairs and stay with us now. Women on the Line is up next. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of factual filmmaking. Highlights include Cry of the Forests, a look at WA's sacred southwest forests and the activists trying to protect them. Mental as Anything, a heartwarming story about what it's like to live with mental illness. The Price of Truth, a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with never-before-seen interviews. And many more, July 21st to 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter.
COVID restrictions across Victoria have like changed. New, new changes have been introduced to slow the spread of COVID-19 by reducing the number of people leaving their homes and moving around Victoria. This means that you can only leave your home for one of five reasons. Shopping for necessary goods and services, care and caregiving, including medical care and getting a COVID-19 test, exercise, authorised work and permitted study, or to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Victorians may also leave home to visit their intimate partner, their single social bubble buddy, or in an emergency, including those at risk of family violence. You must stay within five kilometres of your home for shopping and exercise. This limit does not apply to work when giving or receiving care, getting a COVID-19 vaccination, or visiting an intimate partner or your single social bubble buddy. Face masks must be worn indoors and outdoors whenever you leave home unless you're working alone. These actions will protect our loved ones, friends, colleagues, healthcare workers and the community. The census is happening this August. Your answers help make a better future for all of us. Like the number of babies, so health services know where we need mums and bubs programs. And the number of people in communities to plan local transport services. You can help tell our story. Look out for instructions on what to do. For more info, visit census.abs.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.